Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Film for Fans podcast, the podcast from movie fans for movie fans. I am your host, Ryan Dunleavy, joined, as always, by the kitty bomb pop American clad Rob Dunham. Yeah, we're wearing this because tonight the United States will qualify for the World Cup. Will is correct. Unlike Italy. Uh, it's too bad this isn't a soccer podcast I know, I know It is not a soccer podcast It is in fact a movie podcast And we have a packed show for you We will break down the Oscar winners And we will talk about which one of us did better We will uh, discuss the opening movies for this weekend And Our discussion will be an interesting one where we discuss movies that best exemplify a particular era. And in this case, we're going to be talking about the early 2000s. And of course, our watch list. All right, let's get started. Uh, Rob, let's talk about the Oscars. And before we get into any of the ridiculousness that is the Oscars in general. Let's, let's get let's get the main the main stuff out of the way. The winners, the winners. Uh, let, let's start there, and then we'll then we'll get to get to the insanity. All right. So uh, how we'll do this is I'll give you the category. I'll give you who won, and I will give you who we thought would win. Best picture. Winner. Hoda. Both of us picked the same thing. We picked Belfast. It did. It was not Belfast. I think it's fair to say that we were literally guessing on all of these, so I'm not surprised. Yes. Yes, indeed. All right. So uh, Belfast wins, or not Belfast? Sorry, Coda wins over Belfast. Not took home a number of awards. Best actor. The uh, one and only Will Smith is the, uh, is the winner. Uh, I selected Javier Bardem. And Rob, you selected Benedict Cumberbatch. So neither we are over two. Yeah, neither of them are Will Smith. Neither of them are Will Smith. <laughs> I should have kind of known this was going to be Will Smith, but, uh, you know. Like, best actress, winner, Jessica Chastain. Both of us picked Kristen Stewart. Now, I almost want to take half credit because I said it should be Jessica Chastain. <laughs> that is not who I chose. Yeah. No half credit here. No half credits here. So we're 0 for 3. All right. Best Supporting Actor. Winner, Troy Kotsu. I picked Troy Kotsu. And Rob picks here at Hens. So one one nothing to me on that one. Prokotzer, of course, the actor from Coda. So that's two awards of the main awards to Coda. All right, best supporting actress. Winner, Ariana DeBoer. I don't think I have that pronounced right. Uh, from West Side Story. And neither one of us really even talked about her being an option on <laughs> we talked about this last week. Uh, I picked Anjanu Ellis and you picked uh, Kristen Stewart. Mm-hmm. All right, best director, winner, Jane Campion. I picked Jane Campion. Rob picked Kenneth Branagh. 
So if the final score wraps up at two to zero to me. And you did uh, even accurately predict that the best picture and director would be separated this time, which is not yeah. always the case. It is not always the case. Yep. I just figured the power of the dog was named for too many things that it was going to win something. So mm -hmm. that was my rationale there. So uh, what did you make of the main winners? Well, I think it's significant, first of all, that um, Coda won because it's the first movie that went straight to a streaming service that won yeah. uh, Best Picture. So that's a significant milestone when it comes to what these streaming services are doing with their production. Yeah, and I wasn't convinced that they were, they were ready to give that out yet. So that is a milestone. I can't, I don't know how much I can really speak on the rest of the awards themselves because I just haven't seen these movies as we talked about before. Yeah. So it's it's hard to really say for sure if they're deserving or not. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. All right. So that those are the main awards. Let's get to let's get to some of the minor ones. Anything that stuck out to you from the minor awards? Or not, well, not that they're all minor, but the the other awards. Let's put it that way. The other awards. Well, I have to claim some credit that I did pick Corella to win the best costume design and yes. it won. Yes, you so. did. Um, pretty happy with that and is glad to see it got recognized because I think they did a fantastic job in that movie of designing a world through the costume. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing is that uh, Dune pretty much cleaned house when it came to the technical words, visual effects, sound design, um, cinematography, film editing, production, all won by Dune. And and score original score as well for and visual Zimmer. effects and achieving visual effects it won like six Oscars yeah so that to me says that they recognize it's a great movie but because it's a sci-fi movie or a fantasy they weren't willing to give it the best picture even though these things would seem to indicate that technically it was the best movie of the year according to the people who judge these things yeah. yeah it's pretty obvious from the award that they understand that it was the best movie this year but i will go a bit further beyond the fact that it's sci-fi the fact that it doesn't make the hollywood actors feel good about themselves by making it win uh is another factor in that so i i just think yeah it's a tacit acknowledgement that dune was the best film uh, the other thing that stands out to me is the sweet irony of the best achievement in makeup and hairstyling going to the eyes of Tammy Faye. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, to the, the irony of best makeup going to someone who's known for having horrendous makeup. It's fantastic. Yeah. It is a sweet irony, and I, I'm here for it. It's great. I guess if you're able to replicate the horrendous makeup, then you deserve some recognition. <laughs> And that was actually my rationale for why uh, Jessica Chastain is the best actress, uh, having to do that every day. So, yeah. yeah, acting is a sacrifice when you have to put on 20 pounds of makeup. <laughs> yes. <laughs> for sure. Um, I also think that this is a signal. 
faced to perhaps win the best picture award for the second part of the movie because this is what we saw with the Lord of the Rings movies that they won a ton of technical awards um, for the first two and then finally got the Oscar for the third. Yeah. It might be um, a build up a cumulative effect when it comes to the second movie if it is close to as good as the first. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Okay. Those are the awards. Now let's get into the, the main thing. Um, what do you what do you make of the whole spectacle that is the Oscars? And then I guess we can get to the dumb Chris Rock, Will Smith incident. But what do you make of this whole mess? I mean, the viewership did go up 58% this year from a record low last year. So, I mean, that's not amazing, but it is significant. So, for some reason, more people watched than last year. Um, I'm not really sure what the reasoning for that is. Um, maybe since more people had a chance to go to the theater and see some movies this year, they were more invested in checking it out. Um, to see who would win this year. Uh, and just, I, I, I really struggle with it being relevant. Yeah. Uh, like we talked about last week, it just seems like there is very little acknowledgement of what people actually watch and care about when it comes to this. And um, the fact you give Dune so many awards saying, this movie was exquisitely made and yet refused to give it the big award because it's too popular, I guess. Yeah. Uh, is, uh, is frustrating to me because I think it deserved that recognition. Yeah. Uh, for me, it's just every time I see one of these last ones, it really is just a constant reminder of how I don't like these people. <laughs> Like, never, never have been an in, in industry that I love so much be run by such people I don't like since FIFA and Step Blatter was running FIFA and the corruption was just nonstop. It's, it's so bad. I mean, it's not obvious that they're a bunch of self-righteous, morally preening people. It's, it's ridiculous. I mean, are you familiar with the term ultra-crepidarianism? No. Please enlighten me. It basically means people who give advice outside their area of expertise. Hmm. And that is a description of Hollywood to a team. Like, they're good at one thing. They're good at playing other people. Whenever they have to be themselves, it's horrible. And then they're constantly telling everybody else how to, how to be and act. And it's just like... They're terrible people. I mean, that's just the, that's the long short of it. And that's, to me, that just sums up the whole, the whole, you know, Chris Rock, Will Smith thing. It's like, everyone wants to get into the breakdown of it. This, this to me, is just the stupidest thing in the case of time. Uh, so I'll let you give your thoughts on it first. Um, so did you see Jim Carrey's response to I this not. at all? Morning America. Um, they interviewed him uh, with Sonic 2 coming out and asked him his thoughts and he was surprisingly uh i felt transparent and to the point and honest about it and he said that he was embarrassed by the fact that will smith got a standing ovation when he won his award 
Yeah. And that to him it signaled that the people in Hollywood have given up and she's like, we're not cool anymore. <laughs> like, yeah. we just, we, we worship and we're back. Um, the people that we support, even if they do something stupid, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, I did see a meme that I thought was great showing Will Smith holding up his Oscar and it said to calm Will Smith down, they gave him a free statue of Jada. <laughs> wow. I like it. <laughs> um, I also, uh, an- another thing I enjoyed was seeing somebody put out a fake Chris Rock tweet, which was not real, would have been amazing if it was, where he apologized for his behavior and said he didn't realize Will had such a hair trigger temper. And uh, he was, he was bald face wrong to, uh, <laughs> to make oh. that joke. Um, I mean, the joke was not the, in the greatest taste, <laughs> for sure. I think I think they're both at fault. I don't I don't think he should have made the joke. I don't think Will should have reacted the way he did. Um, I mean, he was laughing until he saw that Jada wasn't laughing, and that's when he yeah. flipped out. So it makes you wonder, like. I don't want to go into the dynamics of their relationship because there's a lot of a lot of things that are out there for public consumption about um, the strength or lack of of their marriage. So that's not for me to say. Um, but it it certainly got people talking about the awards. But uh, and I heard this yesterday and fully agree. Uh, listening to Chris Russo on Mad Dog Sports Radio because he's a big movie person, and he said. Um, Will Smith somehow managed to overshadow not only the entire Oscars, but his own win for best actor. And no one will ever remember that win for best actor without remembering that moment. Correct. To me, it indicates several things. One, the fact that it seems to me like Will Smith did that because he knew it would be accepted by the people who he was in the room with. Like he knew he'd get away. He knew he knew it would be fine. The the fact, and I think, secondly to the larger point, we've talked a little bit about the death of comedy in Hollywood, and this to me is just another prime example about the death of comedy in Hollywood. The fact that I mean, you can say it was an out of taste joke, but I saw another comedian say, "Hey, hey, look, like we don't have medical reports on every single person who's in the room when we're doing comedy." We see something, we, we you know, we throw it out there. You know, we don't know. You know, sometimes that happens. So, is it the greatest taste? No, but like the fact that that was seen as an acceptable reaction to a joke in Hollywood, I think, is an indication. Is an indication of where Hollywood is in terms of comedy. Uh, but yeah, it's. You know, I heard some people try to do a conspiracy theory saying it was fake. They did it on purpose. And I'm like, there's no way it was faked because these people literally think this is the most important event that takes place in the United States every single year. For them to fake this would have to be a tacit acknowledgement that they're not getting any that they're not getting the viewership and that people don't care about this and want to do something about it. They could actually have to have that level of self-awareness and they don't. So they couldn't invent this type of thing if they wanted to. 
I mean, I think I could make you buy that argument if you hadn't gone back down to his seat and and yelled at him and swore at him from his seat. Yeah, a couple more times. Yeah, because it was not a good look for anybody. There's no way they would have done that as a joke. Yeah, and this will be this will be something that hangs over Will Smith the rest of his career. Like his career will be diminished because of this. It just is. Yeah. All right. That's enough time on this nonsense. All right, moving on. Uh, we want to talk a little bit about what's coming up this weekend. Uh, so we have two movies in store. Uh, we have the big release this week. It's Morbius. The, uh, the what? Morbius. 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 Sorry, I typed that wrong. Morbius. Yeah, I typed that wrong in the outline. That's my bad. <laughs> Morbius. Yes, the Jared Leto uh, film. This is a, a combination Sony Marvel release. And this is uh, the next one in the uh, in that calendar. And we have The Contract, uh, which is a movie uh, starring Chris Pine, Julian Jacobs. And it is a discharged U.S. Special Forces Sergeant James Parker risks everything for his family when he joins a private contract. Uh, so those are your two big releases. The big one, of course, we're going to spend some time on is Morbius. Uh, so what are you expecting from Morbius? Sorry, I, keep, I need to change that. So, um, I, from the first time I saw a trailer for this movie, it didn't really grab me. Um, I mean, I don't know much about the character Michael Morbius, so that's part of it. That it's not, it's not one of these higher level marvel figures so it's hard to get super attached to the concept i think but to be fair i think people would say that about like guardians of the galaxy when it came out i think people um would say that about suicide squad the new one when it came out if that had been the first one that came out <laughs> yeah um so just because a character isn't like widespread mainstream doesn't mean the movie can't be good. And I mean, I, it could be good. I just don't have a lot of expectation of it. I think part of that is also colored by the fact that Jared Leto just was not very good as the Joker. Of how he'll do in another superhero movie role. Although this time he's playing the kind of good guy, I guess. Um, it seems that the character is somewhat of an anti-hero, which would align with the Sony Marvel Venom arc as well. So, I mean, Ven I think both Venom movies were better than I expected them to be. So maybe this will do the same, but I'm not, I'm not overly hopeful of it. So we'll have to see because I'll definitely be going to see it because I want to see what it's about. But I'm not crazy looking forward to it yeah yeah and it's interesting to me too um how they're doing this um, i i would i'm with you I, will, I don't look at it and be like yeah i'm super excited about this i feel pretty much the same way about this one as i did when venom came out like i just wasn't interested in venom which is another sony model project 
And hey, I don't know, Evan turned out to be a pretty decent movie. And, and I was surprised at how good it was. So maybe this would be the same. But again, I'm just, I don't feel, I felt a lot of, a lot about like the new characters introduced in this phase of Marvel is that I just don't, I'm not that engaged with them. And so I'm not sure what to make of that. Yeah, um, so the question, I think the question for Marvel movies in general is, are people going to latch on to these new characters or was the um, ending of the Avengers the high point of the Marvel movies? Because I think that there's... Uh, I think the performance of um, Thor, Love and Thunder, and Black Panther 2 are going to end end the Doctor Strange movie. I think all those things are going to play into where this goes. Um, if we see it reach the levels of the first run. And I really, in my opinion, I think that maybe that first run of movies was like lightning in a bottle. Like it was the, the peak of comic book movies that we're going to see. Because I, I, I wonder where you go after that. And I don't, I don't think the Eternals or a couple of the other ones that have come out have really risen to that level. And I wonder, too, like, it looked to me like they were setting up, after the second Venom movie, they were setting up Venom to have a role in Spider-Man No Way Home. And really, they just shoved him into the post-movie scene. Yeah. So I really wonder how much Marvel proper really wants to integrate Sony Marvel characters. It almost seems like they're intentionally kind of kind of keeping them in, but kind of keeping them on the sidelines. Like more of best features uh, Michael Keaton playing reprising his character in Two, which he played in one of the Spider-Man. So you get in that triangulation between. Remember, Spider-Man was originally one of the Sony properties, and it took a while for that really to get integrated back in. Which is one of the reasons why you have this switch back. So it seems like they're triangulating between those three Sony properties, but they're not really trying to get them in the end. And I wonder if that's intentional. Another thing I saw, um, this was just on Reddit this week, I saw that Jared Leto said that he's hoping in the sequel to Morbius that the uh, three Spider-Men will be in it. Hmm. And I don't even know if there will be a sequel to Morbius. Yeah. So I, I just, I don't see it doing a crazy good number at the box office, but I've been wrong before. We'll see. Yeah. Yeah, so we'll see on that one. Um, yeah, we'll see. As far as movies coming out soon, the only thing I care about right now is that the unbearable weight of massive talent is coming out in April. Yes, it is. <laughs> uh, I can't wait. Yes. Uh, they did, just on another side note, there was the new trailer for Top Gun Maverick dropped this week. So check that out. All right, let's move on to our discussion. 
And what we're doing, this is a feature we'll come back to occasionally. And we want to go through movies that we feel most exemplify a decade or a segment of a decade. Uh, and these, basically, the definition here is these are movies that we believe represent general characteristics of a specific era. Uh, now, this can be exemplifying the characteristic of the movies of that era. Uh, I'll give you an example for something I talked about last week and things I hate about you. Exemplifying the, the hair, the fashion, the crazy button down shirt, uh, the the female singer ska band on stage at the prom, you know, all that type of stuff. Example of the nineties. Or it can be something where it created the features or the environment of the marketplace for the movies that ended up defining that era. I'll give you an example there would be Saving Private Ryan from the 90s. It exemplified, it started the trend of more violent, realistic action war movies. Uh, so that's a couple of examples of what we're looking at. So the era we're going to discuss today is early 2000s, and that's two years from 2000 to 2005. So I want to start out. This wasn't on the outline originally, but I just want to get, when you think 2000 to 2005, what comes up for you personally? Uh, I think of... Obviously, none of these things are like brand new for that era, but the prevalence of technology um, in movies, especially when you're looking at technology that could be used for a bad purpose in the future, I think is a common theme. In the early 2000s, I think a lot of that was born out of... Uh, yeah. You personally, in your life, in the years 2000 to 2005, what do you think about that? Oh, what do I think about? Yes, in my for you personally. Hmm. Well, I was in college. Yeah. So about college, I think about going to the movies. Um, think about uh, being in my first real band and making music. Hey. Um. Think about my good friends uh, from that era. I think my friend Josh, um, who is not with us anymore. I have a lot of good memories of that time. Yeah, yeah, me too. It's a it's a special era. We were both in college at relatively the same time, and uh, and so college was a lot of fun. I really really enjoyed the time. So this this time was primarily for me like beginning adulthood. I graduated in the year two thousand, and I had, I graduated college in two thousand five. This like defines the post high school era for me. And it was a really, really good era, and I really, really enjoyed it. I think about college sports, playing soccer and basketball in college. And just, yeah, lots of friends and fun. And stuff. All right, now you can get on to your general characteristics. So I think I can talk about that by talking about the movie specifically. Um, uh, like I was talking about, the one thing that I see that stuck out was the use of technology in a way that was pervasive or disturbing. I think of like government interference kind of thoughts. And I think a lot of that was born out of um, the war on terror or just like general fear. But interestingly enough, Minority Report, which I chose, I think was already happening before that all happened, it was going to happen. So 
I don't think it was directly tied to that, but I do think it represented what was going on with people being afraid of, you know, Big Brother, if you will, spying on them or taking over their lives. And with Minority Report, it's taken a step further to include crimes that people didn't even do yet. And just using a machine through, through the use of beings that can see into the future, supposedly, to dis- to determine if someone was a bad person or not. And I also think that this is where Tom Cruise in this era, late 90s, early 2000s, is starting to come into his main recognized role as this action person who's doing all these crazy things to try and evade capture or pull off a secret mission, which is, you know, another thing we see in Minority Report because he's trying to uncover the truth about everything that's going on and pretty much doing whatever he has to do to make that happen, climbing on walls, jumping down bullet trains, going down the sides of buildings, pretty much, you know, normal Tom Cruise stuff. Yeah. Uh, so that you just kind of jumped right into your minority report one. Do you have anything else to say about minority report before we switch over? I don't think so. Okay. Uh, so I, I wanna I wanna emphasize I'll go right to my one of my list that ties in really well with it, and that's the born identity. I think the born identity is a representative form of this and it's ironic because that came out in the theaters at the same time as the minority report. And and it's it's a fascinating look at this. Um, I I contemplated minority report, but I actually thought born identity represented the a little bit better. Uh, it redefined the spy action genre. Um, when you're coming out of the late '90s, you're coming out of eras where it was highly unrealistic, highly almost cartoonish in nature, outlandish. Um, think of this as exemplified by the Bond, the the Bond films of that era, and we talked about this. When we talked about that. Uh, they were unrealistic. They were far fetched, and that was kind of the the, the era. Born Identity brought out a much grittier, down to earth action hero. Uh, they were more realistic. It featured um, like some of the directing in terms of the fighting, the quick cuts, the action sequences, the way they label things out, the epic takes. All these things became characteristic of the era. And they um, also started to define, redefine um, the Bond movies too, because yeah. they saw that and recognized that they had to yeah. make things more realistic if they were going to grab people's attention. Mm-hmm. And this is, this is part of what I think about this particular film, Defining an Era, is it led directly to, to the reboot of Daniel Craig's Bond in 2006. It also led to the new direction that Mission Impossible took on. Mission Impossible 3 came out after that and took on a very similar direction, uh, which goes back to your Tom Cruise from Minority Report aspect in that, in that remake going forward. Also, films like Body of Lies, which which kind of ties into both of our themes, of, you know, government spy thing versus and the greater action spy genre. Film. So, Born Identity, I think, is a very key characteristic in this era. I agree with that wholeheartedly. Yeah, I think it changed the 
direction of where action movies went for a long time after it came out. Yeah. What's your next one? Uh, the next one I had on my list was Shrek. Uh, the first Shrek came out in 2001. Um, and I think it's really the definition there of movies that are kid animated movies, but are also relatable to adults, which has become a major theme now. I think you saw some of that in older Disney, et cetera, movies, but I think this being the, like, this is the movie that people know DreamWorks for, um, because this was like the big, big tentpole for them. And obviously they made a few others after it. Um, but the foul mouthed, uh, ogre living in the swamp, joking around with his donkey friend for, for all intents and purposes, if you had described this movie to someone before they saw it, they probably would have said that sounds dumb. (laughs) I don't want to see that, but I think it turned into a phenomenon that maybe they weren't necessarily expecting. Uh, I don't think anyone could have seen it doing as well as it did because it became massive. And then you had follow-up movies to it because of that. Uh, But I I think that style, the animation was starting to become a little bit more realistic. Um, Obviously you're dealing with like fairies and um, fairy tale stories here, but the animation style was a little bit, more down-to-earth relatable i think for people and this is one of the first movies i think that pulled that off well in fact it's probably a little bit ahead of its time animation style wise which is why i think it was such a big deal it's really interesting to me because i always viewed Shrek as a dreamworks reaction to pixel so it's interesting to hear feel like that's a defining movie for that particular era because I, yeah, that's always been my opinion. And I, I might be wrong. That, is that it, it was DreamWorks upping the game in response to Pixar? Yeah, I feel like Shrek, with the humor that they put out in that movie, um, and the style they had, kind of, it, in my opinion, they made a different paradigm than what Pixar was doing. Um, maybe they were reacting to it, but I think that what they did changed the course of animation i I still think that that movie has a style of humor that isn't in the pixar movies um it's a little bit more rude (laughs) for lack of a better term and i think you've seen that carry over into like the minions movies and some other things those big movie movies um i think that's kind of become a hallmark of those animation studios more so than disney and pixar fair enough all right, uh, so my second one is going to be Old School. Old School came out in 2003. And while this is not one of my favorite movies, I think it defined the era because every generation has like has their comedy movies. The movies that they grab, the comedy movies that they gravitate to, and it's usually like a comedy troupe, and a comedy, uh, a band of comedians that make several films in a particular era that kind of capture the era. For me, this is the one that most represents this era of comedy. 
and it was this generation of comics. Uh, you have almost all the famous comedic actors in this film. You have Luke Wilson, you have Vince Vaughn, Will Ferrell, John William Scott. Um, Owen Wilson wasn't in this movie, but he'd be another one in there. Ben Stiller's another one in there. But I have most of the ones in there. And they have the features like the college type comedies, irreverent, politically incorrect, funny slash inappropriate at all moments. And these were all big characteristics of the big comedy movies of that era. And it really kind of represents um, it represents what was to come, the comedy in the early 2000s. I mean, this was the big breakout for Will Ferrell. Not that he hadn't been in anything before, but this was the one that really triggered, like, okay, we need to make a lot more movies with Will Ferrell. But all the Will Ferrell movies that followed were a result of this. Uh, Wedding Crashers, Dodgeball, Anchor. Um, the only other one that might have preceded a little bit was Zoolander. Um, that kind of in that same vein, but I think Old School Better represents uh, Zoolander was a bit of a forerunner, but I think Old School Better represents that whole era of comedy. Yeah, I think you see some of the echoes of the beginnings of this back all the way back to Swingers with Vince Vaughn. Yeah. Um, but I think that. By the time old school came around is when you're starting to see it more fully realized and maybe um, a little more put together, mm -hmm. um, organized, if you want to say that, when it came to the comedy. Uh, not that the, uh, the comedy is crude and crass, yes, but uh, it's written well <laughs> and it, it is funny. Um, I know that it's not everybody's cup of tea. I know people who just don't like Will Ferrell whatsoever, <laughs> uh, but I, I, for me, it's hit or miss, but I know that I watched old school a lot <laughs> and laughed at it every time. And it was characteristic of those areas. You were laughing, you were like, should I really be laughing at this right. the whole time, which was very characteristic of all the comedies, the big comedies in that era. All right, what's, what's your next one? So my last one that I had, and I think that I saved this one for last because for me, it kind of is the ultimate exemplar of this early 2000s era. Because to me, it stars a person who, when I think of them, I think early 2000s. And that's Julia Stiles and mm -hmm. the movie Stance. Um, another movie that I think if you had described to someone, oh, we're going to have this movie about dancing and the inner city and all this stuff and people would have been like uh yeah that's gonna be terrible but for some reason people connected with this and then you've got other movies that came out like honey and the step up movies and all that stuff is built off of i think this one coming out and i think it represents the early 2000s as a react i think kind of as a reaction to some of the things we've been talking about where people are afraid and worried about the future and what might happen. And this is kind of the opposite where you're focused on what can I do right now? Um, a positive uplifting message um, and a movie that focuses on, uh, I think another thing that started to come around the early 2000s was a focus on uh, more diversity. And I think that Save the Last Dance is a, an example of those things starting to happen. 
Yeah, that was not. I mean, I know I think back on that genre of dance that all came in the heels of that. Um, but yeah, I didn't even think about. I didn't even think about that as an option. That's interesting. Yeah, I think you're honest. Uh, for me, my last one that I saved is Gladiator. For me, Gladiator is one of the films that most defined the era. Uh, it did actually win Best Picture, uh, which is just almost a miracle now, considering <laughs> how Hollywood is and the Oscars are now. Uh, but what it did was it relaunched the whole era of Sword and Sandman. It kind of been um, on the back burner for a number of years. Um, people didn't think they made any money anymore. Um, and all of a sudden, thanks to the win of Gladiator, you've got a whole string of films that led to it. Number one, pretty good. You have Troy, you have Kingdom of Heaven, even 300 can trace the moves to Gladiator. Uh, you have the Alexander movie, which has been recut like 9,000 times because of the uh, even a relaunch of Spartacus, and, and all of that stems from Gladiator. Um, and also launched a second round of movies from Ridley Scott. <laughs> Obviously, he'd been a big director, Blade Runner, you know, way back in the day. Uh, but it, it launched a new run of movies from Ridley Scott that really went well. Also, the rise of Russell Crowe. Russell Crowe was a huge actor in the early 2000s. And this was kind of the film that put him on the map. He ended up winning uh, Best Actor the following year for Beautiful Mind. And so the rise of Russell Crowe uh, that took place in the early 2000s. Yeah, also, I think of even um, King Arthur, although it's a slightly different mm -hmm. genre when you're talking about the Arthur legend, but I do think it, the style was informed by Gladiator, too. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so I think that's a good discussion. Definitely yeah. representative of and a touchstone, I think, for early 2000s, without a doubt. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. All right, so that was our discussion. Hopefully you enjoyed that. If you have any other suggestions about movies you think to find that era, send us a message. Let us know. We'd love to hear from you and hear what you think. All right, let's move on to our watch list. Movies that we watched over the past week. What did you watch, Rob? I went and saw Infinite Storm, which we had talked about. Oh, yeah. um, starring Naomi Watts. Um, I would say that it was a pretty good movie visually. It did not grab me emotionally. It was trying to, it was written to, but it didn't connect with me in that way. Um, the main character is climbing up Mount Washington in New Hampshire and she's, it doesn't, doesn't say it's at the beginning because it just says she's like, she's just climbing. So you don't know this, but she's a member of a search and rescue uh, unit that goes up to check the mountains to see if things are going okay and it also comes come back around to see that she's doing it in part because of trying to process through some things that happened to her in her life within the last couple of years um and the way they did that they tried to make it really emotional and try to make the story of the guy she finds on the mountain really emotional but i don't think they spent adequate time doing it and it just it didn't it it almost felt like it should have been a few episode tv show instead of 
a movie and I just, I, I didn't like it very much. <laughs> I think it could have been, I, I think it could have been better. And I think, I don't think it's any fault of the acting. I think the, the writing was not really that great for the movie. So I wouldn't necessarily recommend going to see Infinite Storm. If you like movies about survival, if you like movies about climbing, there's certainly stuff in there for you. But I I expected there to be, I think, a bit more um, peril than there was. I thought there would be more involved in what was going on with the climbing sequences, how long it lasted. It was really only about half the movie was her going up the mountain to get him and come back and then the rest was like explaining the story and it just didn't do a whole lot for me. Interesting. Okay. Uh, for me, I, uh, I watched Deep One and uh, that is the Hulu original film with Ben Affleck and Anna David Moss. And it was interesting. Um, it was a it's a marriage drama, and basically the plot is um, Anna de Armas uh, basically doesn't want to be restricted to her marriage, so she kind of dates other guys in front of her husband, and her husband is okay with it, sort of. Uh, but what you see is her flaunting her quote-unquote freedom in front of him and him brooding in the background. And you're like, okay, clearly this dynamic doesn't work. What's going on in the background? The story is what's going on inside Ben Affleck as all this is happening and the conflict in their marriage. Um, it reminds me a lot of the second half of another Ben Affleck film, Gone Girl. Uh, spoiler alert. When the girl comes back and the dynamic in that relationship, when she comes back, uh, very reminiscent of this movie. Um, I really don't like Anna de Armas' character, and you really don't like Ben Affleck's character, but you understand him better. So, all in all, it's interesting, but I don't know that you're left with, okay, other than the fact that someone clearly hates marriage. <laughs> When you wrote it, I don't know if there's a lot to it. Uh, I also saw yesterday again, I watched with some friends, and that is a film based around Beatles music with the premise that uh, the entire world loses power, and when it comes back on, there's only one guy who remembers the Beatles. And so he becomes famous, a famous musician, singing all the old Beatles songs that nobody's ever heard before. Uh, it's a kind of a cool premise. They do some things I don't necessarily love at all times with the storyline, uh, but it has a lot of heart. It has a lot of feel to it. Uh, Ed Sheeran uh, has a significant role in this movie. And it's interesting because it's almost as if they're tying Ed Sheeran and his incredible songwriting ability as kind of like a modern-day incarnation of the Beatles. Or, or at least a, uh, a pale equivalent to it. And he's actually he's actually really interesting and self-deprecating in the movie. So I think he does a pretty good job. So it's, it's a quality film. I highly recommend it. If you want a date night film, if you want to come watch this film, it's a good one. All right, Rob, you got anything else? I do not. 
All right. Well, that is the show. Thanks for checking out filmforfans.com. Make sure you go to the website uh, to check out our list of top movies of 2021. It's much better than the Oscars. All right. Until next time. Enjoy the movie. To be fair, our list slaps. <laughs> All right. I'm good. <laughs>